This is Life in the Passing Lane, an audiobiography by me. I'm Alex Bennett. I'm going to entitle this chapter Random Thoughts, just a bunch of things I want to catch up to and so on. And as you may remember in our last chapter, I had gotten my job back at Live 105. Uh, after about, oh, I'd say it was nine months off, if I remember correctly. Now, let, let me say something here that's, I just realized it the other day. You know, I've, I've, one of my favorite singers of all time is Frank Sinatra. And I've read several books about Frank Sinatra. And Frank Sinatra's books can be chopped up into two different books. One book being pre-1950 and the rest being post-1950, because towards the end of his first part of his career, uh, he was out of work. Nobody would hire him. And uh, he had to go play clubs owned by gangsters and so on to keep making money for a couple of years. And all of a sudden, he wins the Academy Award, and he's back on top again. And now there's this second career. And it's the second Sinatra. It's not the same Sinatra from the 40s for instance. And I kind of felt that way about my career at Live 105. There was pre-firing and there was post-firing. And actually, pre-firing wasn't as long in time range as post-firing. And when I came back, I guess I had a slightly different attitude. Wasn't enough to change the style of the show. If anything, it set it in stone. It, I knew what it was now and I could recreate it anytime, anywhere, anyplace. And so the show I was doing now was far more, uh, I don't want to use the word professional, but it was far more calculated, and, and I cared about it more than I did before. I would say in that first incarnation, uh, I was devil may care. Hey, I just took it for granted. I was a hit. I was a star and everything. After you're out of work and after you're struggling to get back in the game, you appreciate what you've got a lot more. And so some things changed. Uh, we played a little bit more music because that's what the program director wanted. And hey, I wanted a job back. I'd go along with anything. We didn't play that much more music, although when I go back and listen to the tapes of the shows, uh, there was maybe, I think, too much music. But that's just my way of thinking. Um, so this was the second half. Now, in telling the story so far, I've kind of mixed up my time at Live 105 between post and, and uh, past. Uh, in other words, when I did story about the Olympics, the Olympics actually took place during the second half of my career at Live 105, in the post-firing period. In fact, it was 1992 was uh, Alberville. 1992 was uh, the Summer Olympics. And you say, how does that happen? Well, because they used to all be in the same year, okay? And that one was in Barcelona, which was absolutely wonderful. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. Uh, and then, uh, of course, uh, there was the next Winter Olympics, which would then have to make it 94, okay? And uh, in 1994, it was in Little Hammer. And then uh, 
Two years later came the Summer Olympics in Atlanta. Now, the reason for all of that was is that the winter and the summer were at the same time, and then they decided not to do that anymore. So two years later was the winter, and then two years after that was the summer. Does any of that make any sense? Well, anyway, we went to all of them, and I loved them. And, you know, as I watch the Olympics now, I, I think back on them, and I think back on a lot of the stories that happened there, some of which I haven't even been able to tell here and probably aren't worth telling. But on all of those trips, I was accompanied by somebody, and I don't think I've really given her enough credit so far on this uh, life history, and especially of my time at Live 105, and that was Lori Thompson. As I told you before, Lori Thompson, I, I acquired Lori Thompson out of just being a nice guy. She had been the newswoman in the morning on, on Kit's Hot Hits when I got there, and uh, they said, uh, you know, we'd hate to get rid of her uh, if you'd like her as your newswoman because I couldn't get my old news guy, Joe Rogelski, because he was still under contract to the other station. Uh, would you take her? And I said, sure. You know, I mean, I, my feeling about sidekicks is, and I, this is not to diminish any of my sidekicks. Well, maybe it does a little. I can take anybody, make them a sidekick, and they will become relevant to the audience. And that's because I defer to them, I pull them out, uh, you know. And so while Lori was perfect, I mean, as perfect can be, there were, uh, you know, it was a question of uh, could I work with her? And the answer was absolutely so. I mean, unless she was just terrible, and then in which case I'd get rid of her, uh, I, could, I could mold her into my show. And sure enough, you know, I molded her into my show. And she just did a great job. So great that people stopped asking me, where's Joe Rogelski? <laughs> really? Where's Joe Rogelski? Used to be the common thing I heard from people like, How, are you going to have Joe Rogelski on the new show? Where's Joe Rogelski? Oh, uh, you know. No. As soon as Lori started being my sidekick, I never heard about Joe Rogelski ever again. All right? So uh, Lori had, was very good at what she did. Uh, she was an okay newswoman. I don't think deep down she was a newswoman. Deep down she was a radio personality who just happened to be a newswoman. But that's the function that she was serving. And so she would do the news every hour. And it was, it was fine. She did a nice job. She had a great set of pipes. And, you know, she did a, a really nice job of... Uh, of uh, uh, giving the news. She also did a great job of being my sidekick, you know, playing off of me. Uh, part of the job of being a sidekick to Alex Bennett is putting him down, giving him a bad time, saying, oh, there you go again, Alex, that kind of thing. It was important because it modified my acerbic uh, personality. And so it kind of lightened me up in the eyes of people. Uh, also, I had never had, prior to Lori, a female as a sidekick. And it was a good thing because without a female sidekick, the show tended to become too male-oriented, too macho, too sexist, a lot of things like that. But with Lori, she modified it. 
she toned it down. So, you know, it's kind of like sugar and sweet, and they work in combination with each other. And it was a beautiful combination. And the reason I, I wanted to take time out to talk about her is to say that she was very important to my time at Live 105. She helped be part of what the success of that program was. Now, Lori had a few problems. Uh, Lori had, at one point, a drinking problem. And uh, some mornings she would come in and she still hadn't sobered up from the night before. But I think I can say that now because she'd be the first one to agree that that was a little problem back in the old days. But, you know, I saw her through that. Sometimes it was a little rough, though. I have to admit it. Uh, sometimes it, she would come in and she would still be snockered. I don't know if she drank before she came to work or if she got so drunk the night before that she still woke up drunk. All right. But in any event, what would happen is I'd be doing the show and because of the alcohol, she wouldn't have uh, her chops. And the best way to describe it is there were some days like I felt I was driving a car with a drunk in the seat next to me tugging on the steering wheel. OK, so there was a period of time there where it got pretty rough. But then she started to, uh, especially when I came back, she had a tendency to sober up and to uh, take the job a little more seriously in that respect. But by no means, let me let you know that now she's very straight-laced when it comes to, to booze and drugs and things like that. Hell, we all had our drug problems back then. Hell, for the longest time while I was at Live 105 and I was at the Quake, um, I was doing, as I said, I was doing coke. Uh, I don't know if it was in great quantities. I said before that it was like I was a teetotaler. Uh, I was a coke tootler. I, I would do a little bit here and a little bit there and a little bit, you know. But it was on a constant basis. When I went to Miami, also, as I said, strangely enough, the minute I hit the Miami border, I quit cocaine. And when I came back, part of the hallmark of the second half of my stay at Live 105 was uh, the lack of cocaine. I just didn't do it anymore. I think I tried it once or twice again, thinking, oh, I'll get that kick that I got when I first did it. And the fact of the matter was I didn't. It, you, just, you go back to where you left off. And so I, I decided that wasn't for me. And uh, I hadn't been into pot that much, so I really wasn't much of a druggie. In fact, I've never been much of a drinker. As I've said before, some people thought I was an alcoholic because when I would go to a party, I would have a ginger ale or a Coca-Cola. And people would wonder, hey, is, you know, is, he, a, is he a drunk? And um, uh, no, I wasn't. But I did do my share of drugs over the years. And when I came back to Live 105 the second time, uh, I was pretty much uh, through with that part of my life. And so... The second part also was done not so much in a haze like the first part. Uh, and it was, I think, overall a better show. The first show was a little unpredictable. It was kind of goofy. Uh, uh, it, uh, it, you know, we had some comedians who made their bones during that first uh, show. I, I think of them almost as two different shows. Uh, like Bob Goldthwaite and so on, who became very successful. Bobby Slayton, who became very successful around the country. Uh, but the second half 
was uh, uh, just a good, solid bunch of comics coming into town. And any time a comic came to town, they wanted to do the Alex Bennett program. So, you know, it was, I, I think, in many ways a better show the second time around than it was the first time around. And part of that has to do with appreciation. But let me get back to Lori. You know, Lori uh, was just a terrific person. I mean, there's nothing you could say uh, about Lori that was bad. You know, you can't say she was an asshole. You can't say she was uh, stuck up. You can't say any of those things. She was just a very terrific person, and I was always glad to have her there in the morning with me. And the great question that always happens when you work with a woman, and it, it I, in, some, in some ways it's kind of sexist, and in some ways it's kind of not, and that is, uh, you two ever sleep with each other? Now, there was a team of Ann and Ross over Channel 5, and we got to know them because we, we got to do their show on a couple occasions. And as we got to know them, we compared notes on the male-female relationship on the air because Ross wasn't married to Ann, and Ann wasn't married to Ross. And they said, do people ever ask you, hey, do you have you ever slept together? And I, I said, yeah, all the time. It, you know, uh, it, it is one of the most oft-asked questions. And the answer was very simple. Absolutely not. Why absolutely not? Because you don't do that with somebody who you appreciate and who you work with and who you have a good working relationship with because nothing will screw it up faster than a night of sex together. And so you had the orgasm. And you lost a partner. And who wants to go through that? So, no, we didn't. But I'll tell you one time that proved it. And I love telling this story because it just shows how we compartmentalized our relationship. Uh, we were in Barcelona. We were doing the Olympics. And I said to her, listen, when we go to Barcelona, why don't we, after the Olympics, get on a boat or get on a plane? It's just a, like a 45-minute ride. And we'll go to uh, Ibiza. Now, you know, I told you before, I loved Ibiza. Ibiza was my place to go that I just loved it. It was a very special place. Isn't now. Now the Kardashians go there and it's all ruined. But back then it was still wonderful. And I said, let me take you, let's go to Ibiza. And she said, okay. And it was pretty packed at that time of the year. And uh, so the only hotel room we could find was one hotel room. Plus, they were very expensive. And so uh, I, uh, I said to her, well, you know, we could sleep in the same bed. Or, or, or we'll ask for twin beds. And we asked for twin beds, and they said, the room we have for you doesn't have twin beds. It only has a single bed. So I went, okay, well, let's see here. I can sleep on the floor uh, and, uh, or, you know, whatever. And she said, it's ridiculous. Come on. You know, we know each other. We can sleep in the same bed together. We slept in the same bed together for I think it was four nights, okay? And never once even came close or thought about having sex. I was shooting video at the time and we did do a funny little bit where she and I are both lying in bed together and then finally at the end of it, um, uh, 
the I turn the lights out and supposedly it's black and all of a sudden you hear us going, oh, Alex, oh, Laurie. But Laurie and I proved to ourselves that we compartmentalize the relationship. That, you know, what we, we were friends and we weren't about ready to trade that in by rolling over in bed one night. And so that's the, uh, that, that's the sum total of what happened with our relationship. But I just wanted to say, Lori was a very important part of the success of the show in San Francisco, and I will never, never forget her. Uh, she was just absolutely terrific. Anyway, let's get on to a couple other things. Uh, you know, when I did uh, was doing radio, and this, is, this goes through the quake, goes into uh, um, Live 105, I was also starting to do TV. Now, I had always wanted to be on TV, but I never got on TV. Actually, I wanted to be in movies. As I told you, I got into radio because I wanted to be an actor, and I figured if I was a success in radio, somebody would ask me to act, and yet nobody to this day has ever asked me to act in a movie. Uh, oh, I've been in a couple of movies. Uh, I was in One Fine Day with uh, George Clooney, uh, but, you know, I'm on the radio as he wakes up in the morning. Didn't have to go in for that one. And we almost had a job. Lori and I got a call uh, one day from Pixar. And we, I had friends over at Pixar. And they said, hey, you know, we listen to you and Lori every morning. We're doing this movie called uh, Bugs Life. And we want two of the bugs to be you and Lori. And I said, cool. They said, can you, you know, we'll, we'll call you back later today and we'll figure out when you're going to come over and we'll talk about it. I said, cool. So, yay, we're going to be voices in a Pixar film. And uh, noon comes and I get a call and they say, we just had a meeting and decided not to do that. <laughs> so one minute we were running out, we're getting ready to do our big thing at Pixar and the next minute, nothing. But anyway. Uh, I, I had, I guess, always wanted to do TV, but I, I, I didn't know what, what exactly in TV. And when I started doing comedy, people started coming to me about comedy shows. And we uh, did a show first uh, for PBS, for actually KQED in San Francisco, and I did it for five seasons. I hosted a show called Comedy Tonight. And every show would have two comics on it. And I did the wraparounds. I was sitting at a, I don't know, a, a, a table at, a, at, the, at the club, at the nightclub, and introducing the comics. And that went on for five seasons till they got rid of me because they, they found somebody else to host it who, who then, I guess, it was her biggest role playing me was Whoopi Goldberg. But uh, anyway, uh, I did that for five years. And then um, I did a few other little things around San Francisco. And then Channel 44 asked me to do a special, two specials, two comedy specials. And one of the reasons I lost the job at Comedy Tonight was because they didn't like me doing essentially a comedy show on the air where I would have comics. And we had about five comics on each episode. We shot two of them over a period of two nights at the Great American Music Hall. And uh, they were okay. They were good. I, I, I enjoyed them, and I think the public enjoyed them. They didn't get great ratings, but its significance was is that the first show uh, went on just before the premiere of uh, 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 Star Trek Next Generation. Uh, it was the year Next Generation came out, and it was starting at... Uh, 
at, uh, uh, at Channel 44, and we, were, we, we literally were slotted right before it. Uh, but the ratings were so-so. And then we ran the second special, and the ratings were so-so. So that was my show, which I still to this day own, I think, half of. Uh, and uh, then later on, Channel 44 said, ah, let's try it again. Why don't you do a special? And so uh, we did a special that if I sh show it to you, I've, I've got to go get a copy of it, maybe put it online sometime, is maybe the worst television special ever done in the history of television. I mean, it was just, it was ghastly. There was only one thing in the whole thing that, that seemed to work for me, and that was I did a walk through the marina, which is my home, and, and that was a pretty nice piece, actually. And it kind of gave me the idea for the next thing I would do, which was Channel 5 in San Francisco was doing the Beta Breakers show as they would do it every year. And they did a Beta Breakers wrap-up show. And they said to me, Alex, would you like to be on the Beta Breakers wrap-up show? And I said, sure. And I did this bit uh, with, um, uh, uh, let's see, three ladies from a, a strip joint uh, and a limousine and a dog. And um, it, 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 to tell you the truth, I, you know, I, it was just a comedy bit, but it was part of this show, and this show won, yes, an Emmy. And so all the people in the show who were listed as being in the show got an Emmy. So I won an Emmy. Um, a year later, I was working on a new show called Log Me In TV, which was about uh, technology, which I knew a lot about. And I won the Emmy for that. So I now had two Emmys. Emmy Award winning Alex Bennett. Yeah. Isn't that swell? So I kind of had a TV career, if I think about it. And it wasn't a bad one, but it was all local. And... Uh, uh, it, it worked out pretty good for me. Um, but anyway, that's, uh, that's some of the things that happened on the side of all of this that was going on. Meanwhile, the show itself was about me and comedians, and comedians were the mainstay of the show. And I could sit here and start listing all the great comics that I've had on the show. And especially during that second period. I mean, people like Dave Chappelle, for instance, or Kevin Pollack, or I mean, I could, I mean, I can go on and on and on about the comedians that I had, Robin Williams, uh, you know, and and I could say who who were some of the best. I couldn't say who was the best. I get asked that question a lot, almost more than did you ever sleep with Laurie, and that is who was the best comic you ever had on. There were, there were comics that would convulse me. For instance, Kevin Meany would come on the show and I would have to ask him to stop because there was so much pain in my midsection from tensing up from laughing that it was ridiculous. You know, there were people like Jeremy Kramer, who a lot of people, probably some of you have never ever heard of Jeremy Kramer. Brilliant comic. Brilliant. Stephen Pearl. I mean, but you see, now I'm starting to name names, and then I'm going to leave people out, and then some people are going to feel terrible. But when people say to me, who do you think was the most significant comic you had on? The one who 
made a difference. I say, well, it isn't one who made a difference. It's a person who could have made a difference. And that was Bill Hicks. Now, I think that any of the comics who might be listening to this, who say, how come you didn't mention my name? When I say Bill Hicks, go, of course. Bill Hicks was the heir apparent in my mind to that which Lenny Bruce did. You know, so many people kept saying about comedians, oh, he's the next Lenny Bruce. But none of them were ever the next Lenny Bruce. I mean, Sam Kinison, who I loved, and Sam was a good friend, uh, you know, for all that he did, was not the next Lenny Bruce. But having grown up listening to Lenny Bruce and seeing Lenny Bruce in concert, the thing that made Lenny Bruce special was his outrage at the world around him. And Bill Hicks brought that same thing to the stage with him. And I have to say, if I'm going to say brilliant comic, if I'm going to say the best comic that I've ever seen, it would have to be Bill Hicks. Yeah, the best stand-up I've ever seen is, is, is probably Bobby Slayton. You want a classic stand-up comic? That's, that's Bobby. But when you want to talk about significant and special and something that you walk away and you go, I really was in on something special, it was Bill Hicks. And Bill Hicks... Uh, I, I wish I could say, hey, you know, you, you could say to me, gee, I never heard of Bill Hicks. Where can I see him? You can't see Bill Hicks anywhere. Bill Hicks uh, died. He died of pancreatic cancer. And I may have told this story before in this series, but and I don't care because it's worth telling again. Bill, I saw him one night at the punchline. And this was maybe about six months before he died. And he said to me, he says, I'm giving up uh, comedy. I said, what? He says, yeah, I'm giving up comedy. And I said, why are you giving up comedy? You're, the, you're so good at it. You're great. You're one of the best. And he said, no, it's just I don't want to do it anymore. And that performance in San Francisco was one of his last. And I got to tell you, when I heard that he died, I, I don't think I've ever felt that bad, at least up until that point in my life, about anything. Even my father dying, which was a tragedy, was n didn't, didn't hit me quite the way that Bill dying did. Because Bill was 32 years old and he got pancreatic cancer, one of the most painful deaths you can have, and, and he died at a very early age. And I just said, this isn't right. This guy, this guy had so much promise. And if you ever get a chance, go back and listen to Bill Hicks. Now, I remember being in New York when I heard that Bill Hicks had died. And I went over to see my friend Shecky at, uh, at, uh, at the Letterman Show. And I said to him, uh, did you hear about Hicks? And he said, what? What do he do now? See, the reason he said that was that one of the first comedians that... Uh, that uh, Letterman ever had on on the CBS show was Bill Hicks. Of course, you'd never see that particular performance, although you can now on YouTube, because in later years, Letterman decided to run it. But uh, he went and did his, his set. 
And when he went back to the hotel, he kept thinking to himself, that's the best I've ever presented myself on television. And he called me about this the next day to tell me the story. And he gets a call from the Letterman show, and they say, we're not going to run the, we're not gonna run the, the, the stand-up. I said, why? He said, ah, there are a couple of jokes in there, and Dave's worried, you know, that the CBS honchos won't like it. And it was, he was new to CBS, right? And he had just come there from NBC that said, we don't want you on the, on the early show because you're, you don't have the mentality for an early show. You're only a late show guy. So he wanted to make sure that he was minding his P's and Q's and he didn't want any trouble. And he thought that the set with Hicks would hurt him. And uh, that's why Shecky said to me, what did he do? And I said, he died. He said, what? And all of a sudden, it spread all over the Letterman show, and then from the Letterman show all over New York. And I got to tell you, uh, in later years, Dave has said that the thing he always felt most guilty about was the time he didn't let Bill Hicks on the air, because he, he also felt, as I did and a lot of other people did, that Bill was a very special commodity. And I just want to take our time here to let you know about Bill Hicks. His albums are still out there. You should listen to them because you're going to hear just an absolutely terrific comic. This has been Life in the Passing Lane, an audio biography by me. I'm Alex Bennett.